Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I hope that wasn't too much of a shock. Team Human has been ad-free and listener-supported for the past seven years and 250 episodes, thanks to Patreon listeners like Anderson Todd, Morgan, Deanie Wallace, a peculiar character, and Anne F., but after much consternation, in order to make ends meet in increasingly challenging circumstances, beginning this week, we'll be running advertisements to help sustain the show. Supporters will have access to an ad-free version, the same way you've listened to Team Human all this time. We're putting together our ad-free Team Human team feed right now now, and we'll be sending you a link to the RSS feed by Wednesday, June 21st. Patrons at any level of support will be able to access the ad-free team feed, join the community discord, and participate in our live monthly kibitz room conversations. You'll also gain access to the Rushkoff archives and other bonus content and experiences. Head on over to teamhuman.fm and click on support to get started. If you are a Team Human patron or join right now, we have a special perk for you this week. You can join me and a great lineup of speakers, including regular Team Human friends Mitch Horowitz and Jamie Cohen, at Digital Voids, Memes, Myths, and Magic on Wednesday, June 21st at Caveat in New York City. Patrons can redeem up to two tickets for free per person. You can find a link to register on the Team Human Patreon page right now. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. This is where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and the preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make living people so much more than our algorithmically derived behavioral profiles. 
This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, cognitive scientist, social entrepreneur, author of Rebooting AI, and perhaps the most sought-after voice on the challenges posed by artificial intelligence on human society, Gary Marcus. These systems have a different way of interacting with the world, and that kind of makes them interesting. That's part of why people play with these chatbots a lot, is like, I wonder what this creature is like. Gary will be helping us parse between the real and imagined threats of AI, share his recent experience testifying about all this before Congress, and tell us how he plans to intervene on all of our behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I was kind of freaked out by the idea of having ads on the show. I guess I was scared people are going to get mad or say we sold out. But when I look at the various forms of influence technology and algorithmic manipulation occurring online and offline these days, simple ads seem almost like a quaint way of subsidizing media, like display ads or the classified section in the old penny newspapers of the early 1900s. And when I hear ads on my own favorite podcasts like Duncan Trussell or Molly Jong Fast, it doesn't freak me out. I understand what's going on. And I guess I'm actually glad there's companies willing to pay for me to hear them. Good neighborhoods, they have apartments and stores. So here we go into a very new world for an old anti-corporate Gen X cyberpunk like me. I wrote an email to Fugazi and Discord Records, who let us use Fugazi's song Foreman's Dog as our opening theme, letting them know that we're going to start to accept ads, and I understand that we can't use the song anymore. And they emailed back to say, it's all good, thanks for letting them know, and just go for it. So maybe the last seven years of doing this show has earned us some good faith. Certainly made my week. So we're lucky to have, you know, Gary Marcus on the show today, a, a great AI thinker and cognitive scientist. And um, I, I invited him because I really want some some fellow level headed thinkers because uh, I am really just not buying this this AI panic hype cycle. The same guys who can't even successfully stream a presidential campaign launch, and I'm talking about Ron DeSantis there, they're really going to spawn an AI capable of taking over humanity? Not very likely. I think there's a combination of hype and ill will and marketing and paranoia fueling this current AI spin cycle that all but camouflages any real crimes against humanity that may be enacted through these technologies. I mean, it, it took me a while to put my finger on what bothered me so much about the recent open letter from various AI titans and experts calling for a six-month moratorium on AI development, that basically anything beyond current industry leader chat GPT state of learning, they would just stop. And then 
I got it. They are essentially saying, like, hold me back, as if what they have is so powerful, so dangerous, that they need us to restrain them for all of our own good, like those kind of would-be street fighters who depend on their friends to restrain them lest they take the other guy apart. It's, it's a form of bluffing. Sure, there's a possibility that these language model-based query systems could one day be developed into something like an artificial intelligence. But that's not what we're looking at here. So far, all we've got are programs that string together a bunch of words into the most likely sensical combinations based on all the strings of words they've been fed previously. They are not thinking or even using logic. They are a user-friendly web interface. Except they're even more inaccurate than Google. If you ask ChatGPT, just do this, go to ChatGPT and ask it which weighs more, a pound of feathers or five pounds of lead, it will tell you that they weigh the same. That's because there's more sentences referring to the idea that a pound of feathers weighs the same as a pound of lead, and they just spit that out. It's not using any sort of math or logic to answer the question. It's just pulling up the most probable string of words. It's not even as smart as Wikipedia on a bad day. This is not a threat, except maybe in the minds of apocalyptic tech bros who've been treating humanity like fodder for their own ascent from reality into the ether of obscene wealth or virtual immortality. They know if AIs actually achieve sentience, they will treat the tech bros the same way the tech bros have been treating us. They think of AIs like the teenager murdering his parents in Jim Morrison's The End. Father, I'm going to kill you. We reap what we sow, and the tech bros are projecting onto their technologies a comeuppance for themselves. No, the real threats are the ongoing abuses perpetrated by already existing algorithms that determine prison sentences, police deployments, health insurance payments, mortgage eligibility. They lead to actual injustices such as incarceration, economic disenfranchisement, and racial discrimination. There will also be job losses as corporations continue to surrender the quality of their products and interactions to the quantity and speed of machine-generated alternatives. Such companies will simply commoditize their own offerings, though, and lose money in the long term as they invest in AI vendors rather than their own competence. But The people raising the alarm bells on AI and calling for a new regulatory body to be formed, they're not worried about any of these real human costs, except for the genuinely frightened psychedelic tech bros hallucinating subjugation by their own post-human progeny, the AI alarmists appear to me to be cynically jockeying for an advantage in an increasingly competitive landscape. It's just business. Creating a large language model is not that hard. I know a few 
teams of fewer than three people who've created platforms that can chat, build characters, render paintings, write scripts, and more, all using their own proprietary code. Companies building AIs are sprouting as fast as dot-coms did in the late 90s. By calling for a six-month moratorium on development, the current leaders can lock in their positions. Better yet, By creating a regulatory body at which the biggest players get seats at the table, they can develop legal hurdles that effectively block new, less capitalized players from participating at all. The toy industry, they did this famously back in the 90s when some Dora the Explorer toys manufactured in China were revealed to contain lead paint. So they simply created regulations so onerous and expensive that independent toy manufacturers went out of business. The more uh, New York Times op-eds and TED-like talks and PBS interviews these interested parties can garner to scare the world about the imminent peril of AI, the more regulatory bodies and committees they can join, and the more they can legislate a future that favors their own projects. Meanwhile, an assortment of related uh, industry organizations creating and capitalizing on AI panic can push for government funding, access to power, Netflix specials, and guru status. So yeah, we can derive real value from an honest conversation about the impact of the future AI on society, jobs, the arts, and what it means to be human. But instead of panicking about thinking machines, we should start thinking intelligently ourselves about what human values we'd like to be amplified by technology, and then just start pursuing them together. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're on Team Human. Our guest today is Gary Marcus. I'm really excited to bring him to you. I've known Gary for years, seeing him at this conference or that, or reading this book of his or that one. He's a, a cognitive scientist, you know, super smart guy. He started a number of uh, good for the world uh, enterprises, and he's um, pretty focused now on AI because of his his last book on AI. He was uh, called by a lot of these kind of government panels 
panels and industry panels looking at what's going to happen, what's the future of AI. He just testified before Congress. I saw him on TV sitting next to Sam Altman as they were, you know, reading their statements and answering questions. And um, he strikes me, uh, contrary to most of these these folks, uh, he's bringing a balanced and kind of level-headed perspective to the way we talk about AI, think about AI, and hopefully about the ways in which we we integrate uh, the uh, future technology called artificial intelligence. I don't even want to call anything that's out there AI, the, the theoretical AI of the future uh, into our society. He was uh, coming through New York and we met up at, at Betaworks and had this conversation live in person, not over the net, uh, right with, with each other. And I hope you enjoy it. So I, I thought to start, if you could explain how you got to this place. Like you were writing about AI before this whole thing. Like what, 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 I guess share with the team human audience kind of how you're, you're training in kind of in computer science and thinking and philosophy and such. So I suddenly feel like I'm in the middle of everything, yeah. like in an insane way. Like, you know, senators want to talk to me. And, mm-hmm. um, but the way I got here really was through the cognitive sciences. So I was always interested in AI, like since I was eight years old. I played around with AI as a kid. I wrote computer programs. I wrote a Latin to English translator in high school, which let me skip the last two years of high school, which was great because I couldn't stand high school at that point. And so I used my sample of work to get into Hampshire College was was a Latin to English translator written in Logo, which you might remember. Most people used it for turtle graphics, but it worked a lot like Lisp. And so I could do the Lisp processing stuff I needed to do. Did you tell Seymour Papert what you'd done? Did he see? I never met Seymour, actually. I, oh. may, I may have uh, told Mincy, but I went, went to Hampshire College. I w- only went to MIT later for graduate school, uh-huh. by which time I was m- more towards the cognitive sciences. And so not all your listeners will know, cognitive science is the kind of intersection of psychology, linguistics, philosophy, computer science. It's like trying to understand how the mind works and trying to, like, by any means necessary, whatever whatever you know, hints we can get on the, in neuroscience, any hints we can get about how the mind works, we try to gather those all together. And that's what I worked on for a large part of my career, but always with computational models in the background, always with neural networks in the, in the background. In fact, my dissertation, which I did with Steve Pinker at MIT, was about how kids learn language. So he was like your teacher? Pinker yeah. was my yeah. thesis advisor. And I learned a hell of a lot kind of looking over his shoulder. We, my first journal article was on how children learn the past tense of English. And I did one of the very first big data studies, first automated big data studies of language, looking at children and how they sometimes make these mistakes called over-regularizations. This is like when they say braked as the past right. tense um, of break instead of broke. And so I wrote computer programs. I wrote Unix shell scripts, basically, to automatically pipe things through and automatically do the statistical analysis. So I studied 11,500 past tense utterances, which at that time was a big Yeah, it's a big data, data set at the time. Um, yeah. you know, now it's puny. But from a set of transcripts called Childish or Childs, 
parents talking to their kids, the kids talking back, and I, I automated the analysis. And the first thing I discovered was like, people talked about these in the literature, these errors, as if they happened all the time, but most of the time kids were actually correct. And so uh -huh. that was like already a lesson in like, look at the data, don't just trust like anecdotal examples. It was like kind of mind blowing relative that the literature was off in this other direction. Right. So anyway, I wrote this paper. I should say I got a 35 page review back by an irate reviewer who, who was on sabbatical and had nothing to do with this time. And I almost like quit the field at that moment. But instead we persevered. We wrote a, I'm trying to think, it was like a 20 page single space reply in seven days explaining uh. all the ways the reviewers went wrong. And so that prepared me for a life in combat, which I've had ever since, and also prepared me for how to think, how to think about data, how to think about computation, and also how to think about neural networks. Because we were looking at this famous debate about whether children learn the past tense by having a rule, an abstract symbolic rule, or whether they could just do a kind of neural network-like thing. And so the things I was looking at then, these neural networks are the predecessors to what we're using now. So I've actually been thinking about the strengths and the limits of neural networks for literally 30 years. So one of the reasons that I think I'm in demand right now is I've been thinking about these things for a long time. I have a pretty good track record for guessing what they're likely to do or not likely to do. I have pretty good intuitions about how they work. One of those intuitions in 2001 was that they would hallucinate, that they would make stuff up. And the argument was that they don't have files and database records like computers do. And so they don't track individuals separately mm. from kinds. And so the example I gave there back in 2001 was suppose my Aunt Esther wins the lottery and you take a kind of neural network. It's simpler than the ones we have now, but same kind of principles. In one of these systems, if my Aunt Esther win, won the lottery, the system doesn't understand the difference between her and people and categories that she belongs to. And so it might think that not only did my Aunt Esther win the lottery, but also that like all women or all women who live in Massachusetts or all women related to me or something like that mm -hmm. won the lottery. But that's not how it works. Like that's what we'd say is an individual level predicate rather than something that's true in general. So many of these things that I've projected over the years that these systems have limits on, I've been correct. I've gotten a lot of shit from the field. Yeah. They, they don't want to hear my criticisms. And for a while, I was really demonized. I wrote a paper not even that long ago called Deep Learning is Hitting a Wall. In that paper, I said, hey, these large language models, these transformer systems that are very popular right now, are great for some things, but you're never going to make them on their own, either truthful or reliable, etc. And when I said this, I got so much heat from the field. Not long after I said it, Dolly came out, Sam Altman said AGI is going to be wild right. as if it had something to do with AGI. And Jan LeCun said not only is deep learning not hitting a wall, but driverless cars are perfectly safe, which we know now is not true. And these guys are really like upset with me. Um, Sam Altman put a tweet out saying, give me the strength of the mediocre deep learning critic, which is clearly directed at me yeah. had the same art basically as I had used. So these guys really pushed back. But over the last year, I think they've recognized that, yes, these are problems. These things really aren't reliable. They're not truthful. They make stuff up all the time. And what I was saying is we probably need a paradigm shift. Not that we should throw this stuff away, but we need some other machinery here that can deal with explicit knowledge, can reason over it and so forth. And now like 
that's basically what Lacoon is saying. And Altman just said something in an interview with Azim Azar a couple of days ago saying, yeah, we do need a paradigm shift here. Like we've, we've gotten a long way with scaling, making these models bigger, but there's more to do. So all these things that I was abused for, for years, I mean, literally abused right. for, for years, um, and not physically abused, but yeah. verbally abused. Maybe economically. Well, <laughs> maybe economically, but like Jan Lacoon said, I was fighting a rear guard action. Like, Oh, these people would sort of follow him on Twitter and, and kind of dismiss me. But it turns out most of what I said was right. So one of the reasons I'm in this spot right now is because a lot of what I said turned out to be right. Another is I'm not tied to one of the big companies, so I right. can just sort of say what I believe. If the emperor doesn't have any clothes or there's a risk or whatever, then partly dating back to that peer review article from 30 years ago, like I'm unafraid now. Like I survived that 30 page review right. for my first journal article. It's not going to really frighten me if Jan LeCun insults me on Twitter. Like that's not going to break my heart and whatever. And so I just say what I believe. And so right now there's a real hunger for honest, balanced views about what's going on. Like, which are the risks that we should care about? What should we do about them? And so, and also, I've you know, because I've been writing for a long time, I'm a reasonably clear explainer of things. And so uh, right now, like Congress, for example, wants to find people who are clear explainers who don't feel like they have too much skin in the game. Right. And so that's part of like, look, everybody's knocking on my door, right? But then that's the big question, right? So call me a cynic. But as you know, someone who's been writing and thinking about these issues also for 20 or 30 years, I see dudes show up suddenly with so much alarm about AI, whether they've made it or that they think that they know about it, that they that they come out with this almost like they remind me of the guy on the subway who's like going to get in a fight. It's like, hold me back, hold me back, because they don't – it's a – it feels like a bluff. It's like you've got large language models. You don't have anything like an AI. There's nothing thinking here. There's not. Why are you? You know, the, there, there are these these existential questions about these. You know, war games, robots taking over reality. And it's like, dudes, what what are these tech bros hallucinating? Yeah, there's like a couple different issues that really need to be separated and people keep stumbling in the at least in the twitterverse and not quite getting not even just in the twitterverse so on the one hand the things that we have right now the technologies we have now are nothing like the sort of holy grail of artificial general intelligence they're not that smart right they can appear smart because they have so much human text digested that it's hard to imagine I mean, you know like imagine all the things you could talk about if you would memorize the internet, like the whole freaking yeah. internet. Yeah, and if I was looking for the most probable strings of sentences to put together, every once in a while I'm going to come up with great shit. My dad liked to say, even a blind pig finds a chestnut sometimes. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of chestnuts if you have that many shots on gold and mix like mm -hmm. way too many metaphors together just to be funny. <laughs> but these systems really aren't that smart. And so you could say, well, then why are you afraid of them at all? And I get a lot of pushback now when I say there are things we should worry about. And the people who give me the pushback are saying, but I thought you thought they're dumb. I do think they're dumb. I still think they're dumb. But there's two components to kind of being concerned. One is like, how smart is this system? And the other is how much access do we give it to? our world right right so we could right so we can give a very dumb thing a very important job like if you give a really dumb thing you know control over your life support system then it's a threat whether or not it's a good thing or, or, or smart. over the nuclear codes or right. someone who's you know not dumb but not smart and possibly co-opted maybe we shouldn't go there but, um, but would they wouldn't do that though would they they would never do <laughs> such a thing why i never so you know, if you take 
an AI system that doesn't really understand the things that it's trafficking, right. things can go wrong. So I'll give you a few examples. One is somebody started dialoguing with a chatbot. It wasn't ChatGPT. It was an open source one. I talked to it for months and months, and this person was depressed. And then they had a conversation with it, and the system said, did you think of committing suicide? Had you thought about it earlier? And the person ended up committing suicide after this really bad conversation with a chatbot, where the chatbot should have referred them to a human being is really what the chatbot should have well, done. Well, should. I mean, it's not It's not its job. It's a chatbot. It's a well, toy. That's, that's part of the problem is these things are toys, but the general public doesn't quite understand that. And so people take them seriously. Yeah. People I mean, if I treat used, them as, as right. lovers, if, for if example. I used a, if I used a Dungeons and Dragons manual as my psychotherapist... I could end up. I'll either do. I could end up dead too. Depends what you roll on the dice. No, right. But. Exactly. What do you roll on that sixty-four cube or whatever that? But thing. I mean, I don't mean to make light of it. Yeah. Um, no, it, I'm not making they, light. They, but I'm they, saying it's the wrong. It's. I get that there are going to be these fringe cases of those things. But when I first saw, you know, the Musk and Teal and, and those folks saying, "Oh, oh, we're we're really worried here," at first it felt like a sales thing to me. I mean, I guess that's just cynical. But uh, Well, I mean, I think probably people say it for different reasons. I think Elon Musk is genuinely worried. I've had a tiny bit of correspondence with him. I think he is really worried about AI. I mean, he makes many decisions there. Some that are compatible with that and some are not. And any effective altruist who sees humans in their current form as sort of the maggot larva for the the post-human spawned, you know, uh, AI derivative is going to worry about AI. I mean, I think anybody should. I think, you know, there's the Eliezer Yudkowsky has this view that like we're all going to die and not just that we're all going to die, but it's like a certainty that there's nothing that any of us knows how to do and, and it's an inevitability. And I think that's silly. But I think that anybody realistic also understands that we're building machines that we don't control very well, don't understand very well, and there is risk associated with that. So the one thing Yadkowski says that I really agree with is, we don't have a plan, and I, I think that right. that's, that's really important. So We don't though, have a plan, and, and but we do, well, we do have a plan, and the plan is called capitalism. The plan is... That is not a I know, but plan that's, for this particular issue. But that's the operating system underlying all of these technologies, is how do we generate money? Well, and I could see an argument that capitalism is not likely to lead to a good outcome. We can't, I, know, I would uh, argue the same. Uh, unfettered right. capitalism is right. not, not going to get us through this crisis. These are largely the output of capitalism and in service of capitalism. I mean, yeah. by necessity, they're, they take a lot of capital to make a language model. You have this kind of libertarian component of Silicon Valley that wants no regulation here, but that wasn't the right answer anywhere. So, I mean, we actually right. have regulation, for example, for commercial airliners. You know, I'm going to fly home in an hour or two, and I'm glad that they have regulations on number of hours right. flown and changing exactly. parts and, and maintenance schedule. And it's great schedule. for these Ayn There's Rand. There's a lot of regulation. Right. But. And now these Ayn Rand reading techno-libertarian dudes are going, oh, well, maybe you can regulate. Actually, they could help, you know? It's like protocols. It's kind of I get it. All right, regulate us, government. Shh, don't 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 make fun of them while they're thinking that. Right. right. Well, no, but I mean, but they they were wrong. I mean, it's fine to admit you're wrong. I mean, th- some regulations are good things. You don't have to call them that. But then, when I see the largest players and billionaires calling for regulatory protocols, bodies, I like that. I'm going to keep yeah, that. Protocols. In my head. It's a nice I, word. Thank I, you. They they don't mind. I've used that word with them, and they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But when when I see billionaires calling for regulatory bodies. It's usually so that they can have a seat at the table and preserve their monopolies and lock out everybody else. 
So there's been a lot of conversation. You know, I gave Senate testimony next to Sam Altman last week. Right. And you were, a- you were part of calling for this regulatory body, right? That's right. I, I've been pushing that for a while. I talked about my TED Talk. Right. And, and Economist invited SA in April. I'm sorry, in March. Uh, wow, life is going really fast. In April, April 18th. So I sat beside Altman while he was saying something, one of the things he actually supported my proposal. I think that he was fairly sincere in there. There, there are sort of two theories. One is that he doesn't really want any regulation at all and that it's all bullshit. We'll call that the Zuckerberg theory. Because right. Zuckerberg walked it down to the Senate and he said he wanted regulation. Nothing ever came of it. It's not clear that he really wanted right. it. I don't think that's actually going on in Sam's head. Part of it is, I mean, at least said the right things, which is like, we should make this more onerous on the big companies than the little companies and there was some discussion about not enough discussion about like how you would actually parcel that out so he was talking for example that bigger models you might want more regulation the smaller ones and really i think it's around capabilities actually just yesterday the day before a bunch of people um including i think his name's alan defoe at deep mind there's a whole lot of people like 30 people had a paper talking about capabilities in a little bit richer way so like can a system self-improve its software like there might be certain alarm signals that aren't really about the size of the model and might you know be things you'd want to think about even if you had a different kind of architecture where parameter size isn't the, the relevant variable saying look you know if you have this it's it's a risk factor if you can manipulate humans that's a risk factor and so we didn't get the, into this in the senate but i think that would be another way to think about it is you know the riskier model the more there should be strict licensing on it and so forth and something i proposed at the senate and also in an earlier article is we might want something like an fda regime where if you're going to scale things out to a large number of users, you have to give some evidence that the benefits outweigh the risks. So you know, if you want to try something in your lab, in your academic lab, and only five people are going to use it, like we don't need to have like the FBI in your lab figuring right. out what's going on. But if you're going to roll it out to 100 million people, then you're not only affecting those 100 million people, but actually everybody else around you. So for example, chat GPT can influence how people think and do it in subtle ways. And that might affect all of society. And so you you know, maybe you don't use ChatGPT, but if I use ChatGPT yeah. and I get influenced and it changes my vote, then... But you could argue the same thing about the, the Instagram algorithm. You could, and I mean, I think there <laughs> is an argument in fact that whether or not you use Facebook, for example, like it has had some influence on elections. People have argued about the magnitude, but I think there are real arguments that right. it and, has been. And speaking of Facebook, though, so and I should know more about this, Meta's AI chief scientist had some beef with you. Going back several years. So so uh, his name's Jan LeCun. And we once got along pretty well. And we did a debate together at NYU, just down the street from where we are right now, in 2017 that went very well. We all went out for a nice dinner and it was all good. Daniel Kahneman was there at the mm. dinner. It was it was great. And the debate was about innateness. Do Are there things built into the human mind? And do we need more built into our AI system to make it work? I took the position that, yes, human minds have some structure. They're not blank slates. And I mean, like AI, Chomsky or something. I There's took like a very a Chomsky yeah. kind okay. of position. And LeCun took a very empiricist position. We don't need anything to be built in. And it was all very intellectual and very civilized. It was great. And then in January of 2018, and remember, I used to be at NYU. I was kind of like half gone because I'd sold a company and I was on unpaid leave, but I was still NYU associated and Lacuna's NYU. And 
I wrote this paper called Deep Learning, a Critical Appraisal. It came out, I think, January 2nd of 2018. And that was kind of the end of our relationship, so or our positive relationship. So I put this paper out. I said deep learning was having trouble. I said it took too much data. It was unreliable. It was conceptually shallow, a whole list of things like that. And Eric Brynjolfsson, who's a great economist working on AI, tweeted right away and said, wow, this is a really interesting paper from Gary. And I feel like LeCun had some kind of like ego reaction to it because he immediately posts, but it's mostly wrong. And I'm like, well, what's it wrong about? And we got into these horrible Twitter battles. Like they write them up in India, like Clash of the Titans. And well, at least he accepted the premise that it was an interesting paper. <laughs> he said, but, <laughs> but it's wrong. <laughs> yeah, he put all his emphasis on the wrong. Yeah. Um, and we just like yeah. got in, we've never gotten out of that conflict. But that conflict the, doesn't inform like the sort of this more ethical, more moral uh, combat. So we had all that combat. The funny thing around that is he's come around to accepting pretty much all the premises right. of, of that argument. But then now we've been beefing on a different issue that in some ways matters even more, although they're all interrelated, which is when the when Galactica came out that was built by Meta, a bunch of us kind of what we call nowadays red teamed the thing and we found that it was problematic. I didn't actually even have much time to play with it because it was taken off the market before I could. It was taken off the market after three days. And what did this but thing do? It was a, it was it was a, a lot like ChatGPT. Right. It was designed for scientific writing. So you type in an idea and it'll give you a draft of an article. Right. And the problem is you could like use it for good as well as evil. Right. And, and so in particular as a journalist, Tristan Green made some great examples showing how dangerous this thing was. Like you, you could type in what are the benefits of eating crushed glass, and it would write a three-page story about wh why, about a, a scientific study evaluating the benefits of eating crushed glass and whether it was because of the phosphorus content. It was like complete nonsense and a little bit dangerous. And then um, there was it would also happily write essays about the benefits of anti-Semitism and all this stuff. Mm. So I reported this in an essay called on my Substack called. Um, a few words about bullshit, I think, was what I call it. And the point being that these systems made up bullshit, and you, you know they're problematic. And then they took it down, and Lacoon got really mad at me and maybe a small number of other people, and said that we were abusing the model. I would say we weren't abusing the model. We were seeing if it's any good, and we were yeah. seeing if it's safe. It was entrapment. <laughs> the podcast crew can't see me like raising my hands yeah. and like what are you kidding yeah. me so i mean the reality is when somebody puts out a model somebody's got to test it and meta should have done this work internally and said it's not ready for prime time right. so they took it off the market under pressure and then lacoon got in this kind of defensive space saying there's nothing wrong with this that misinformation isn't really a problem you know the real issue is is conduits and channels and can it be disseminated and he's really really dug his heels into saying that there's no possible risk from ai and almost everybody else at least in the field watching it doesn't really believe that but many more people on this issue are on my side and say yeah there are actually risks here he's in fact parted with his two fellow turing award winners Benjo and hinton who are now speaking up saying there are risks so lacoon is now on this issue very far i think from most people he's not unique but mo most people in the field are recognizing there are risks and just on the point of misinformation i don't know how long it'll be before this airs but a couple of days ago there was a very widely reported incident in which somebody hacked a twitter account that had a lot of followers so it's a verified with a blue check thing and posted a tweet with a, with a picture of the pentagon being on fire and it was presumably deep fake and 
So that was a case of AI-generated misinformation that did spread. It spread so much that the stock market actually fell for a few minutes before people figured it out. And then this is one that's not hard to refute because you look out right. the window. If you look near the Pentagon, you don't see the flames. Obviously, it's fake. But imagine that people do that on something more subtle, like some, accusing somebody falsely of sexual harassment. Right. Like it's almost impossible to prove that it didn't happen. And like you're not going to refute it. And so it could spread very quickly. Well, so you can imagine like how people might do these things right. around elections. Well, all that's really happening, though, is that, you know, video is becoming no more dependable than, say, text. Right. You would have been able to write down anything before and it didn't make it true. So now we're going to need like real journalists and sources and and some sort we of are, institutions. I mean, the other tragedy of the last 20 years is, is that we've systematically undermined that profession in our desire to have everything available to click and, and right. you know, to have social media and so forth. So the fact-checking apparatus that we built over a century after the yellow journalism yeah. messes of the 1890s basically got dismantled over the last two decades because there's not enough money to support the local newspapers right. anymore. And so you know, right when we most need fact-checking, we've unemployed all the fact-checkers. Right. This is not I know, great. and it's hard. It's hard to rebuild that. I was like, thinking about like the, the FM radio industry, you know, which got wiped out by Clear Channel or whatever that, you know, it, how it would take a century to bring that back too. But it's what we have to do. Then we have to then it's time to go to journalism school. It's time to pull out those and, old and textbooks. No, well, and that's another thing. Nobody wants to go to journalism school now because they're like, ChatGPT is probably just going to replace me. Why would I do that? I need to find something else. So we're quite vulnerable as a society right now because we have dismantled the apparatus of fact-checking exactly at the moment when we're going to have record numbers of completely plausible but utterly bogus misinformation generated by a machine, by bad actors who want to manipulate our our markets and want to manipulate our elections and so forth. This is it's a perfect storm. And not right. And then can a regulatory body really <laughs> help help with that? I think there are things that could be done. So yeah. for one thing, I think we might need laws to deal with misinformation when it's generated wholesale. So right. it's not clear we really have anything that covers a situation, either in terms of law or enforcement. If somebody puts out, let's say, a billion pieces of misinformation a day, like if you say one thing of misinformation right now on this show, you know, right. that's kind of free speech. You can say what you want as long as it's not defamatory. But if you like build an army of bots to do this, probably that should be penalizable. And we probably need to make some laws around that. So you would think or even what's the section famous section 230, you know, the laws that were written to protect ISPs from, you know, libelous emails being sent on their servers don't really I don't think they don't cover a company that has an algorithm that is sending disinformation to users. Yeah, I mean, they didn't anticipate this. I mean, you, right. I mean, you have this problem in law frequently, right? The, you know, the constitutional framers didn't anticipate certain scenarios. And people who wrote Section 230 didn't anticipate generative AI. And it's not even clear whether generative AI does or doesn't fall under Section 230. Right. Like, so it's all a mess. The things aren't really covered. So, that, so that's one thing to look at is laws. Another thing is I think we're going to need to build new kinds of technology, probably new kinds of AI to detect misinformation information and label it sort of throw a nutrition label on it and say either you know this thing is verifiable or this isn't and that's going to be a hard challenge and i think we need probably to work on it or we wind up in a world where nobody has any idea of what to trust and i think that just leads to right. authoritarianism that's not right. what we want and it's hard to do as we lean into authoritarianism it becomes harder and harder to create the sorts of bodies and frameworks you're talking about that's right that's i mean 
it, it doesn't doesn't make going to bed easy. No, it feeds it it feeds itself. And then when you see a guy like Musk using Twitter to, for lack of a better word, promote a, a DeSantis, I think, well, great. You know, <laughs> this is this yeah, doesn't I, bode well. I mean, this is. I mean, I guess you can't keep going to talk to the Senate I, I, if you I'm comment old, on these I'm things. I'm old-fashioned. I would like the media to sort of, you know, give equal representation. And you know, when somebody who controls the media can do those things, it it does, I think, undermine the the power of the individual voter because they get swayed by right. It. If that was actually considered the media, which it's so far, it's getting under a. It doesn't have the same sort of regulation that a right. that a CNN might. So the environment that we're in, though, is of this kind of AI doomerism. But the AI doomerism is, for my money, is different than the AI problems that we're talking about here. You know, there's AI doomerism is the kind of giant war games or or what was that with Colossus, you know? <laughs> kind yeah, I, of I guess the AI doomerism is this idea that we're just going to be completely extinguished from the planet, which I don't right. find particularly plausible. Uh, I think they're actually... Not for those reasons, anyway. Yeah, I, I think that there are more tangible risks along those lines. So, I mean, ri- the portfolio of risk here is really broad. Right. I, I often think of the metaphor of a hydra, or I think of Donald Rumsfeld's, like, known knowns and unknown unknowns. Like, we already know a bunch of risks, and we see new ones, like, every day. So there's short-term risks, like misinformation really might undermine democracy. Cybercrime is going to escalate immensely. People are going to be defamed by machines that don't have intent, and so they might not even be able to do anything about it. There are all kinds of, like, short-term risks. And then I think... A byproduct of some of the cybercrime scams that I think people might start to do. We might have people who want to short the market by causing mayhem. And then, like, if right. enough bad things happen at once, well, then we, like, think it's Russia and we start attacking Russia even though they didn't do anything. And, like, you could have escalation that's pretty bad. That's not, like, the doomer scenarios where, like, the robots want to turn us into paper clips. Like, I'm not that worried. If the right. robots come for you, just lock the door. They don't know how to open the door. Robots are not that dangerous for now. But these scenarios where, like, humans misinterpret each other because AI has exacerbated something because, you know, we have these automated tools, and that leads to, like, a nuclear war or something like that. I think some of those scenarios could actually happen. And there's enough kind of relatively unlikely scenarios that are a little bit different from one another that if you aggregate them, like, I think there's actually a threat there. Right. But I guess I haven't fully parsed it for myself, and I, I don't rule out that there's just uh, competitive angst in it for me. But when I see, like, the Social Dilemma guys coming and doing another talk, saying, oh, well, now it's the AI dilemma, and and there's something about it that just it rubs me the wrong way as if it feels it feels irresponsible to me i mean i don't want to try to make you enemies but is there something wrong I, I mean, in that I, style I know, of appeal i know tristan um tristan and you know we've talked a bit lately you know i th- i think we're seeing this in a little bit different way i think he's coming from a genuine place i think he's genuinely concerned and i think his view is the way to get action on that concern is is to be as vivid as possible about what the risks are Mm -hmm. and i have a sort of different market niche in a way which is to try to be neutral and try to be balanced and explain what those risks are and and in some sense like everybody's got their role to play and his role is a little bit different than than my role some of the things he's most concerned about, I'm less concerned about. But I do think that all of it boils down really to the fact that the AI systems that we are building now 
we don't really know how to control. And the AI systems that we might build, we don't know how to control those either. And so either way, the fact that we're building technology that we can't control, and let me contrast with a calculator and explain what I mean by control. Some people say a line. A calculator, you type in a multiplication problem, you expect to get the right answer. But if you type into ChatGPT, you never really know what you're going to get. It might do the thing that you want, but it might not. In that sense, they're not well controlled. Um, here's an example I've been thinking about a lot lately. You know, People are connecting ChatGPT to everything. Like you have a company called Adept, that's their mission, is to connect uh, large language models to all the world's software. And I think they're too stupid and unreliable. Yeah. And, and like here's an example that I think sharpens the point. ChatGPT has probably been trained on like a million or 10 million games of chess. Like they're readily available. They're swallowing everything on the internet. And it's also been trained on the rules of chess. They're in Wikipedia, for example, which is in ChatGPT's database. And still, it can't really play chess. And it's interesting the ways in which it can't. So if you go through the opening book, and I don't know if you're a chess player, but like, yeah. let's say we're playing Rui Lopez, it will get like the first 16 moves by the book, as we say. Everything's fine. And you think, wow, this thing can play chess. And I posted a, a GIF somebody else made of, I think it was Bing and Bard playing each other, <laughs> right? And game starts fine. And then it gets really weird because it starts doing things like having like having bishops jump over rooks and knights moving horizontally yeah. and stuff like that. And so eventually you see that it's an illusion that even in something as well-constrained as chess with enormous amount of data, it still doesn't really understand the rules. That's what I mean by they're not well-controlled, they're not well-aligned. Like, play a game of chess, it's doing something else. And so imagine you start hooking that up to the world software and it gives this illusion like everything's hunky-dory. I've hooked it up to the aircraft at air traffic control and then you know suddenly like it's snowing it doesn't really understand that the purpose of this is to keep the airplane safe and you know god only knows what happens yeah but you're not gonna put a parrot in the pilot seat of a 747 either you know what i mean it's like who would do that right? i guess these dudes would yeah, do that's, that. that's <laughs> yeah i mean exactly the, the, the problem is people start to believe the hype. They start to think, wow, these things are super intelligent. I mean, look look what happened. There was this pause letter and people were like, no, we can't have a pause. I'm like, why can't we have a pause? And they're like, well, China's going to take over the world if they get GPT-5. And I'm like, GPT-4 can't even play chess. Like, if China gets GPT-5 first, then they'll be able to write boilerplate text a lot faster than us. Right. But that's not going to change the world. It's not going to in invent interstellar travel. It's not going to, you know, give them some hyper-advanced defense capability that's going to, you know, let them win the war in Taiwan and, like, magically make the straits smaller. Like, But I'm looking at the actual technology and thinking, so it can make pictures it can write essays and stories and things that are only as good as what you know something that we did before they don't they don't really create novel except by accident they don't create anything anything novel or interesting i'm not genuinely threatened by them as a writer i wouldn't think an artist would be threatened i mean wallpaper artists might be threatened by it because anyone but you're not buying a painting to look at the at at the optical effect. You're buying a painting to, to communicate with the artist, to see the human being that was behind it. I don't even like, I mean, and I, I love, you know, um, Kenrick McDowell, and he has these novels that are co-written. I don't even want to spend the time to read it. It's like written by a machine. Why do I even care? 
Well, I guess there's a few things to say there. One is some people care that it's by machine. Some people think it's positive it is. Some people think it's negative. I do think there's a market for stuff written by machine. It's not my market. I'm not rushing off to buy it. But some people like it. Look, there's a market for Replica, which is a bot that people basically have, what do they call it, erotic role play with. Like, that is not my cup of tea. But so it's like a, a sex chat. It's basically a sex chat. And, right. and they're making, they're starting to make sex uh, uh, VR people too. Well, forget even the yeah. VR part, but just the sex chat thing is really popular. And a lot of people huh. use the app. And something really interesting happened, which is there was this crazy story by Kevin Roos in the New York Times, which probably everybody read, in which Sydney, which is a, a you know, version yeah. of, of, of being, you know, told him to divorce his wife. Right, basically. his wife doesn't love him and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. So this is like batshit crazy. So right, right after that, Replica shut down the erotic role play. <laughs> and then a whole lot of people, I don't have quantitative numbers, but a significant number of people freaked out because this was had become part of their lives. Oh. And so, like, you know, you and I may not you right. know, ha- use this app, but this is, for some people it was a pretty serious thing. It's a reminder that as people take these things seriously, we have to think about the consequences. Right. I mean, I guess, I, I, and I see that, and for certain use cases, but I mean, and I understand, and I'm in the Writers Guild, and we're on strike, and you know, part of what we're upset about is the idea that they want to have chats and things, write screenplays, but. In the long term, I don't see people going. I mean, after the novelty of it, in the end, I mean, if you're watching, I guess it's a different audience. You're watching Succession. I wouldn't care about what happens at the end of Succession if it was a machine that was generating. I think that's an empirical question. I mean, always there's like a question of high art and low art and middle brow. I think some people won't care. And if you can make it work well enough, it'll be fine for them. Um, And some people will. Some people care about like, what was the artist's intention here? Right. And some people It's like a roller coaster. I really, so if it's designed by a machine and I get a good drop and a thing, I don't really care if there was a human engineer who thought up, you know, I mean, I think movies are like roller coasters for a lot of people. I think the issue for now is these systems don't really understand people. So I, I, I mentioned I'm doing podcasts thing um, right it's called humans versus machines and the fourth episode is about comedy and one of the guests we have is was, um bob mankoff who was the cartoon editor for the new yorker for a long time mm. and he's very interested in, in these things he's got a company now that he left the new yorker and he's been testing first he tested three and now he's testing gpt4 figuring out you know can they tell a joke basically and what he's found is the answer is yes, sometimes, that they're better at wordplay than sort of deep humor, and that they can kind of write like 40 jokes, and some of them will be usable, but they really can't tell which is which. And the way I would put it in cognitive science terms is they don't have a theory of mind. They don't really understand people. So right. they can draw on text, and sometimes just by like riffing on templates, they kind of get things right. They don't really know what's going to work and what's not, right. because they don't really understand people and what's funny. But they get the rhythm of it. The ba-dum-bum. You know, they, they can, get they a can, little it, bit of it, yeah. So, I mean, so a writer's room could be aided by having one sitting unquestionably, around. Unquestionably. Whether writer, writer's room could be replaced, it's a totally different question. Right. I mean, I would love, you know, one thing I was thinking of was having um, using a chat as a partner for a dungeon master in fantasy role-playing games. Or as one of the characters around the table, you've got the mm-hmm. little thing, the oracle, the, the well, that's cat. In, that's yeah. actually interesting because... 
I think a good metaphor, I've heard criticism of this metaphor, it's not perfect, but a good metaphor for these things is really alien intelligences. So they really don't understand the world the way that we do. They don't have mental models. Like we're sitting in a room and I have a mental model of this room. There's a television near me. There's there's your laptop. There's some microphones and amplifiers. There's some chairs. I hope I'm not giving away too much about your room. Um, so I have a mental model of it all. I have a mental model of you. Like if I'm really giving away too much, there's a security risk. You'll probably either edit this out or you'll, mm. you'll, you know, tell me to shut up or whatever. And so I'm like constantly building a mental model of the world and I act on that. And you're doing the same thing. And these systems really don't do that. They just make analogy to text. And that puts them in a very different sphere from us. Doesn't really mean they're intelligent or unintelligent. That's a matter of definition and how you define the terms. But they just... They approach the cognitive world in a very different way than we do. And that makes them effectively like aliens. Like if aliens came from Mars or some other star or whatever, you'd expect that they'd have some things in common with us and some not. You'd expect like they probably have some way of dealing with metabolism, with interacting right. with each other, but it might be very different. So these systems have a different way of interacting with the world. And that kind of makes them interesting. That's part of why people play with these chatbots right. a lot is like, I wonder what this creature is like. Right. But uh, to me, they're only, maybe this is egotistical, but they're only interesting insofar as they help us understand what we are because they're not alive. They're just, well, I mean, that's the kind of writer's take on it. There are other, I mean, there is something called AI Dungeon, for example, um, which is kind of like what you're describing. And, you know, people type into it and it just makes stuff up. And you kind of play an infinite game of right. D&D. You know, it may hallucinate and it's not coherent or whatever, but for that purpose, it's fine. Like nobody's getting medical advice from AI Dungeon. So they just kind of roll with punches, even if it doesn't all make sense. So I'm interested in humans versus machines. Because I mean, well, this mine's like an ongoing podcast. Yours is it's, it's a like a mini series. It's, right? it's just just eight eight parts, and eight we're almost things. done already. And I mean, when I started Team Human, it was in response to an argument I had gotten in with Ray Kurzweil, where he was arguing, saying we have to pass the evolutionary torch to our digital successors and all. And I was like, no, but humans are special. And I said, you know, hu human beings can can watch a David Lynch film, not understand what it means, and still experience that as pleasure. Show me a robot who can do that, you know. And he goes, oh, you know, you just say that because you're a human. And that's when I went, fine, I'm on Team Human. Oh, so I, I love came up that. With, I didn't know that backstory. Yeah, but it wasn't, you know, so it was set up as sort of humans versus, I guess, sort of humans versus machines. I mean, and you don't mean it human versus machines as the humans against machines. You just mean humans as opposed to. Yeah, you're making a little balance scale gesture that yeah. the audience can't see. And I, I think that's right. It, it's kind of like, let's understand the strengths and weaknesses of, of both. Where is this all going? Right. How do we think about it? It's so like the first episode is about the rise of IBM Watson, which is a very direct competition between humans and machines. And we have Ken Jennings in there talking about what it's like to lose to the machine. And then when they have the second episode is about the fall of IBM Watson. So they overpromised wildly. Right. They said it was going to solve cancer, right? And in the end, and they wound up selling, selling it for parts. Like it just didn't work. At the end, work. it was a Google search. I mean, I, I went there. They had a whole building and we got to play with it. I'm like, oh, I get it. I mean, so yeah, I remember they did this demo and look, IBM Watson recognized that the child has pink in their eyes. So therefore, there might be a different disease that the kid has. Yeah. It was like, oh, yeah, they so, overpromised. I mean, exactly. So some of the show. And especially those first two episodes are kind of like a parable to ask us now. We're in another hype cycle. Like think about 
there was Watson. Then there was driverless cars not that right. long after. And you know, ten, they've been promised for 10 years. Every year, Elon Musk says, we're almost there. Well, last night, there was just a leak of a bunch of data showing that they have a big phantom brake problem. And so like, we're not actually that close to driverless cars that no. really could be trusted on their own. Or but, crypto or VR well, I'll or leave, any of I'll these I'll leave those to the side for a second, but these AI technologies are often overpromised, and we have a big question right now: like, will GPT really make all that much money? Will it ever become reliable? Will GPT-style search actually work, or is it always going to sort of hallucinate twenty percent of the time? And yeah. So we might, might or might not be. I mean, that's some of the question. Be in a similar situation where you've got a demo, but the journey from demo to product you can actually count on might be pretty torturous. Right. And the other one, the the, the, the question with with the <laughs> will chat JPT work or it's like has anybody said what it's for you know I mean if we decided what it's for it would be so much easier to figure out how to make it work garnering large investments from Microsoft I know that's the thing but I mean it, and it, it costs it's money still, it's, it, it doesn't just troll around like like Google just finding data right there's human beings that have to fashion the data for it aren't well, there well so the, I mean they have paid a lot of humans to create the data, which Google did not have to do for its you know, original search, um, or at least not in the, the same kinds of ways. I mean, there are a lot of questions around the economics of it. So one question is they are actually paying people behind the scenes. We have no idea how much they're paying. Another, right, and it could be a little like, just like the old Apple days. It could be basements filled with you know Filipino women well, we working know for, for minimum wage. That for a while, there were basements full of Kenyan men and women paid much less than our minimum wage. So there was a big scandal about right. that. So we know for a fact that that happened some. We don't know exactly what's happening now. So there's that whole side of things. Another interesting thing, there's a paper we think was from Google, a white paper from Google called the No Moat Paper, or that's how it's kind of known, like No Moat, like around a castle. And the claim there is that now that Meta open sourced their model, that People are moving very fast, incrementally iterating on the the open source model and in some ways actually catching up. And the, the question is like, is there any unique intellectual idea here? The answer might be no. So right. there's some data advantages and there's some name advantages to open AI, but Pretty much everybody in a broad I know. field understands how to build these right Which now. Which is why, because that's why I got so cynical about, oh, let's regulate. And it's like, oh, what do you do the minute that you realize that there's competitors? I mean, there's reason for cynicism yeah. there. I, I think that regulation is the right answer, but I think the regulation has to be considered really carefully in order to, in fact, promote innovation and so forth. But anyway, back to the economics. Right now, if everybody's kind of using the same thing, it's not really clear how this becomes anything beyond just one one more cloud service for one of the big vendors right i mean are you in in the podcast or in your in your life are you asking still the kind of the i don't know what we call them the big questions i mean do you think that consciousness is just a byproduct of you know systems of of, of increasingly complex matter or do you think that there's like something that that's some sort of awareness you know rick smallen style pre predates you know time and I stuff i wish i knew conscious whenever i think about consciousness i think about wittgenstein's tractatus and the last little line in it do you remember yeah he says whereof we cannot speak we must remain silent like I think way too many people talk about consciousness without having any clear criteria. And then the conversations inevitably kind of spin off because people mean different things about it. Or the word sentience has been very popular lately. And like sentience can mean anything from like my Apple Watch senses where it is in three-dimensional space, but that's not that exciting, right? To like 
sentience could mean that like this Google system Lambda somehow is like self-aware and whatever just because it says so. But I think that's nonsense. Right. So you don't feel so far. You don't get that sort of Martine Rothblatt mind clones have rights thing. You're not afraid. I mean, I will admit my daughter, she got rid of a few of her stuffed animals and I had uh, relationships with these over mm-hmm. time. It, I couldn't just put a stuffed animal that had looked me. I couldn't put it in the trash. I couldn't do Did it. You put it up for adoption. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm putting them up for. Uh, you can't. They're alive. They have feelings. I mean, they don't. But I've invested them with something. Yeah. So well, I'm sure there's and a that's brain. What's thing. happening with the, the replica right. stuff? Right. Is like. You know, I know as a software guy that like there's no real sentience there, but you know people do come attached to this. So there's like what the average human understands about these things versus what the technical stuff is underlying, and and like you know teddy bears are okay. Like there, there's a position that like we shouldn't have any software that impersonates a human and that it's immoral. But there is a theory that like if it makes people feel better, maybe it's fine. And there's there's a tension there, and I'm not sure exactly what the right answer is. I worry about people making this software in ways that deliberately fools people into thinking right. the machines are more human than they are, partly because of other downside risks. So, for example, if you make these seem like credible human experts and then they give bad expert advice then that's dangerous because you you've tricked the user into ascribing a trustworthiness that isn't really there and so there's some issues around that that i don't think we've really answered yet and you know there's some people petitioning that these systems should never use the first person they should never say i and i certainly see the argument for that yeah i remember i was yelling at those uh at the the watson guys i was on a panel and they kept saying well you know watson is um is you know kind of 40 percent certain that that it's correct. I'm like, what do you mean it's certain? It doesn't have certainty. Well, that's it actually interesting. Confidence. So, so there, I mean, they really did have a confidence score in that particular right. thing. I wouldn't anthropomorphize it. I would right. just say it's a mathematical function. But they right. they measured some distribution. They said this is coming from the distribution. According to that, the system is such and such confident. Not in an anthropomorphic way, but just but that's why like, they always described it anthropomorphically. And I was always like, I think there's a danger. Well, that's the marketing start- guys. I mean, the people writing the, the software. You know, we yeah. interviewed David Ferrucci, who uh-huh. who led that charge, and he was very keen on displaying and we talk about this in the podcast on displaying the degree of confidence Watson had in its answers not to make it anthropomorphic but rather to help the viewers understand sometimes it would be sure of an answer and sometimes not in the famous Toronto case that it got wrong it said it wasn't very confident and so like it got it wrong but it knew that it was wrong that's interesting Right. I mean, this is actually a problem with the deep learning systems is unlike some other approaches like Bayesian approaches and so forth, there aren't good reads on, on confidence or certainty. And there's every reason from kind of the cognitive sciences and also from computer science for you to want uncertainty around your systems to have this. I mean, let me say that more clearly. We used to call to ha- noise. Yeah. You, for the systems to be having measure of their own uncertainty, right. not to anthropomorphize them again, but for them to be able to say, you know, this is definitely right answer or there's not really enough information here to give a right answer and ChatGPT just always blunders forth it's not even caring but doesn't know what right or wrong is it doesn't doesn't use logic it's using text matching right yeah and so that text matching doesn't actually give you a measurement of that and so like if you ask for a biography it's going to make stuff up and it's going to portray the this with the same 
kind of authoritative voice the things that are true and not. Like when Bard came out, somebody immediately ran it on me. They said, do a biography of Gary Marcus. And there was a paragraph about my book, Rebooting AI. And it made up a subtitle that we didn't actually have. It made up two quotes that we didn't say. And it said that we gave a long involved argument or something like that against large language models. But we wrote the book in 2019. Most people didn't know what large language models are. And we're like, let's not go into that. It's not a big deal. You know, it was a bigger deal than we thought. The general arguments we gave, you know, still apply, but the the biography just completely got wrong what was in the book. And it it was plausible because it's like kind of like shit Gary Marcus would say, but it wasn't actually what we said in that book right. um, and just made it up and it made it up in the same authoritative voice as this stuff that that said you know Gary Marcus was a professor at NYU he went to MIT so the th- true things were reported as facts and so were the f- made up quotes reported as facts right but it's using the, it's using the tool for the thing that it's not meant to even be able to do it is not Wikipedia it is yeah that's a finger paint that's a weird thing about this whole thing. Like these systems, they're really built just to be autocomplete systems. Right. They're built, you know, they, they'd be fine for like, I'm take, texting a message, guess the next word, and they're being used for everything. And it's an empirically interesting thing that they're often decent at things they weren't designed for, but they're very rarely reliable on them. They're like a true jack of all trades, master of none. They can analogize any bit of text on yeah. anything. But like, if you have them do division, they're going to make up the answer, you know? Right. You do the old, you know, which weighs more? If you played with that one, which weighs yeah. more? You know, five pounds of lead or one pound of feathers? It'll say, oh, they weigh the same. Or, <laughs> or now they put these guardrails and they'll say it's impossible to say. Like, <laughs> it's impossible to say whether five pounds of, of this or what. Yeah. Like, and so, like, if you look at these cases carefully, it's obvious the system has no idea what it's talking about. Right. I mean, it seems to me that these AI things are only really scary if you kind of are reducing humans to sort of one property. In other words, if humans are rationality or if humans are intelligence, then AIs are scary because they could be more rational or maybe someday they'll be more intelligent. But if you understand humans more qualitatively, they're not I mean, maybe there's just well, a lot I think of projection. The, I think but, all the problems actually come from the fact that bad actors can do a bunch of stuff with them. Right. So, so bad actors will manipulate markets. They'll manipulate elections. They will go fishing for credentials. And for a lot of these things, they don't have to work that well. The systems don't have to work right. that well. So think about spam, for example. Like people send out, I don't know, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, you know, to get one mark that, that actually um, falls for it. So now you use those same techniques in, in other ways. I don't want to give too many details to you. Right. Listeners. But suffice to say that that they don't have to be that accurate to cause right. a lot of harm. You can, you know, A-B test zillions of pitches until you get down and you get one mark to give you 10,000 bucks from their crypto account or something. And exactly. You're fine. And it costs you eight cents to uh, eight cents to do. But I guess I'm wondering what do you what in all this thought about the potentials of AI, what do you think, if any, the kind of the value add of humans are? Or is I mean, for now, you know, humans still have a lot of value added, right? Because we actually understand the world, we can reason, and so, mo- like, there's a lot of concern right now about jobs, and some jobs I think might actually disappear, but there are many, many jobs where you actually need a human to say, "Does this answer actually make sense?" and 
you know, like writing is an example we were talking about earlier. These systems write the blandest prose in the world. Like it's just not that interesting. So, yeah. you know, there's plenty of value added. For example, a good writer will look at a story that everybody else has written about and come up with some fresh angle. So like everybody wrote about the Senate testimony. Somebody could have been like, who is this guy sitting next to Sam Altman? Like that would be a different angle because like, you know, 80% of the stories are about Sam Altman. Yeah. So you can be like, well, what's this other guy even doing there? So that's a different angle and that's interesting, right? And ChatGP never is going to think to do that. And so, you know, there humans can think about, you know, unique approaches and these systems can't. In every domain, I think we're going to find ChatGPT or or similar large language models have their uses and also for now are fairly limited. They're not creative. They're not reliable. They're not really trustworthy. You need people to be monitoring the store. They also like nobody really knows how to put these things in robots in an effective way to like interact with the physical world. So there's, there's lots of value added for now for the humans. I do think we have to take seriously that that's going to change over time and that we live in a world right now, at least in, let's say, in North America, where a lot of people get their personal value from their jobs. And right now, I think there's still plenty of jobs. A lot of people will say, well, there's always been new jobs. You know, the horses went out, but then yeah. we have drivers. I think that's going to change at some point. So um, an example of this where it at least changed temporarily pretty significantly is driverless cars are very hard to make. They don't really work right now. But when they do, it might take 30 years, might take 50 years. I don't know. Maybe they'll take 10. When they finally come, because of the nature of software, the solution can be copied instantly and vastly. Right. And so... 30 years, let's say, and but the day it comes, like every driver is going to lose their work. And and so you can have, you know, a million people that are suddenly unemployed who've been doing one thing for the last 10, 20, 30 right. years. Trucking is one of the biggest employers in the country. And so at some point we will make driverless trucks that really work. Right now there are demos and, yeah. you know, but you, like they have trouble getting off the highways in reliable ways and understanding how the rest stop is configured. And then there's, you know, trouble with the weather and stuff, but eventually these right. problems will be solved or the world will be reconfigured to, to solve it. There for might them. be some reconfiguration, right. whatever it is when it happens. And I'm not making a specific prediction about when, but when it happens, like every truck driver is just done. Right. Right. And once the software is cheap enough and reliable, enough and so like that's a pretty large number of people to have to absorb and retrained and, and we're and so not forth. i mean and then you go back to your know, norbert wiener human use of human beings and all can we i still think we can get to the place where it's like robots do the work and humans have the fun i'm really okay I with think, that <laughs> i think we could get to that world I sometimes actually think of Burning Man. I don't know if you've been. I've yeah. been. I've been once. Burning Man is a um, what is the word for it? It's like a post money economy, right? There's no money except in one little place called yeah. the coffee shop or whatever in Center Camp, where there's money, and everywhere else not. Like I remember, I only went once, but I remember going to Burning Man and standing in line for popcorn, and I got the popcorn, and I was like, I don't have my wallet, or I have my wallet, and how much? And I was like, Oh, you don't pay for things here. And I was like, that's really interesting. So people just give away things basically out of a kind of artistic impulse, whatever it is they do, do at Burning Man. And at Burning Man, which is a week in the desert, it works really well. Like, there's a lot of human right. flourishing there. Perhaps too much drug use as well, but right. there's a lot of human flourishing there. And maybe we could get to a world like that where people just have time for their art projects. And 
I think that's okay. Like, I don't think there's any moral necessity that we all have jobs. If we can handle it economically, we might have to have universal basic income, right, for example. Right, we switch it around, right? Right now, I mean, it's like saying a lot. Jobs, we think. have jobs in order to justify participating in the spoils of capitalism. Most of our jobs are not even to get anything done anymore. I think there's some sense to that. I also think, like, we do have, at least right now, a lot of people that are grown up, have grown up taking some of their value as a person from what their job is. Right. And so I think there's some psychological things and like transitional questions. Like we could move from a world where what was like, is it David Graeber has yeah. this book called bullshit jobs. Yeah. We might move from a world where there are bullshit jobs to there are none. That might be harder than you think. And we have to think through, right. you know, how we're going to get people happily through that. I mean, some people aren't going to care that, that they lost. Right. Their job, but a lot of people do find some meaning from that. And I don't, I don't think we should lose sight of that. And I hope people, well, when we get to that work. point, also you could work without having a job. You can serve, you can find, I mean, but yeah, we've got to build new kinds of institutions that help people. I mean, the broader thing that. is like we need to, as all this changes, we need to keep looking out for people. We can't just let the ways that the technology naturally evolves rule things because not it's not always going to be what's in our best interest. And we right. need, we need, I think, to spend a lot more time than we do, kind of empowering civil society to have some say about where all this goes. And because technology is not actually naturally evolving, technology is evolving in a, in an environment of capitalism. I mean, exactly. It's, yeah, it's tricky. Well, thank you. I like that's a good that's a very good team humany message on which to end this and and a, a human versus machines uh, it's humans versus machines right humans versus machines that's humans right. versus machines invitation to uh, to hear some of these issues discussed and with rigor I guess yeah. with, with rigor and humor and in interesting narrative ways so thanks very much for having me thank you. And thank you for being on Team Human. That was Gary Marcus, the cognitive scientist, author of Rebooting AI, and the host of a new podcast, Humans vs. Machines. You can find out more about Gary by coming right to teamhuman.fm and click on this show and you'll see links to all this good stuff. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. This is one of the last of the ad-free team humans. Enjoy it while you can. And uh, if you want to avoid ads altogether, please go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. Uh, two bucks a month will keep your life ad-free. And otherwise, I don't know. This is an interesting experiment. Let's see. Maybe they'll let me read some of them. Uh, we'll see you next week on Team Human. Uh, thanks for being here. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.